are your kids tough enough? I mean, at the end of the day, you got your kids sometimes, you think about your own kids and you go, I don't think they're going to make it. It's not looking good for these guys, especially here in Buffalo when your kids are trying to put on their jacket to go outside and they get in an all-out battle with their jacket and they're losing because they can't seem to figure out that one sleeve is pulled out of the other and they're just, it's it's awful. And you look at them and you go, there's no way these kids are going to make it in the real world. And you're probably assuming when I look at my own kids, and they're a disaster, by the way, when I look at my own kids and I think, you're assuming that I'm talking about my preschooler or my kindergartner, but I'm talking about high school students. And, and I've seen the footage, friends. I've seen it. We have security cameras running. And when your kids are coming to youth group and they're making their way in and out of the building, they're a mess. And what they do is the same thing that the kindergartners do. They struggle with the jacket. They go to put it on and they go, ah, Mom, I can't get it on. It's too hard. They're not going to make it. There's no chance. They are not tough enough. When you look at your kids sometimes and you're looking at them and you realize there's no chance for them and you imagine you go, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years in advance and you think about the stuff that they're going to come up against. You think about when they realize how much uh, their college tuition is actually going to cost them. When you think about uh, that first job they have and they're interacting with another employee and it's just real spiteful person and they're not going to be ready for that. When you think about all the different things that they're going to run up to, run up, run up against and you look at your kids you're saying there's no way Uh uh-uh not that kid he is not tough enough for some of you are in a different phase of life and when I'm having this conversation with those of you who have younger kids you got to think about your kids kids and what they're going through and some of you are even farther than that because you have your kids 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 and you're looking at those kids and you're saying there's no way they're tough enough and and those of you who are of that generation, none of us are as tough as the greatest generation was anyway. So that's uh, to be understood. But there's no way that they're going to make it. There's no way they're going to be resilient enough. Well, parents, grandparents alike, I want to share something with you this morning that is going to toughen up your kids. Are you ready? It's a little thing that our family stumbled onto. It's a little thing called hall ball. Hall ball. My kids are laughing because they know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you, though, have never heard of hall ball. It's an in-the-home, quarantine-friendly, so keep that in mind, a game that you can play with your kids that's an old gym class favorite uh, change on dodgeball. You remember dodgeball, right? So you play this game of dodgeball, and most of you have a very distinct memory of it. Even as I say dodgeball, I can ask you, what do you remember? What was the first time you remember playing dodgeball? And you can remember it. And then I ask you, what's the last time you remember getting together with a group of friends and playing dodgeball? And you can actually remember that. It's a very distinct memory and it's just jammed into your head. And then there's this other thing about dodgeball. That ball, that specific ball has a very distinct sound, doesn't it? Do you agree with me? Turn to the person next to you and tell them what that very distinct sound sounds like. On your mark, get set, go. I tried to write it in my own notes. It's not very easy to actually put that sound into words. How would you spell that sound? All right, we want to be socially distanced here this morning. So look across the room, find someone that uh, that you know, and make sure that they're paying attention, and then grab an imaginary dodgeball and shoot it across the room and then hit them with that sound. On your mark, get set, go. Based on sound alone, I can definitely tell that many of you are most definitely out. 
If you're watching from home, you missed that one. Hopefully you planged or plinged or bowed somebody in your living room as well. Hall ball. The items that you need for a hall ball are pretty simple. You need a hall and you need a ball. Yep, you got the idea. What you do is you run across the hall. Don't get hit by the ball. Right. If you get hit in the back, pick up the ball and throw it. No, actually, that's against the rules. That one's a little bit different. So you have to actually roll it back because the only person in hall ball who's allowed to throw the ball is dad. Dad sits at the end of the hall, takes all of the balls, and the kids run up and down the hall, diving into the doorways of their bedrooms and their bathrooms. And dad does all he can to pelt those kids with all of his might. Everything that he's got, try to knock them over, try to knock them out. It is a fantastic game. And if you are worried or you wonder whether or not your kids will be tough enough, give it a shot. Give it a try. In our home, I actually can back this up. In our home, we've got four kids. Uh, For one reason or another, we do spend a lot of time at the doctor's office. Uh, Last week, my my wife was at the pediatrician and she was there. Uh, One of our daughters, we thought that she had a concussion. And uh, some guy had hit her in the head with a dodgeball. And so... Yes, some of you got that. Okay. And so what do you think that the doctor said about your kid? He said, wow, that's a really tough kid you've got there. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look in the Bible. We're going to look in Scripture. We're going to look at the toughest kid in the Bible. We're going to open up this morning into 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, Kids, you haven't been in here with us. So parents, if you've got a Bible with you, if you've got a tablet, you've got somewhere to share that with you, will you make sure that your kid is able to follow along? If you're watching at home, you've got your kid with you there on the couch, will you help them find their way to 1 Samuel chapter 18? Uh, Anytime that there's five Sundays in a month here as a church, we say fifth Sunday is family Sunday. We want to be able to focus on our kids. And that's why we've had our kids leading some in worship this morning. We have some of our teenagers playing in the worship band as well. And so uh, we just want to actually commit that time to say we're going to be intentional about raising the next generation, help them understand uh, what it means to follow Christ. And so my name is Pastor Milo. If you don't know, I get to share God's word every week. And this week is a little bit different because we have the kids uh, in the service. But for kids, you you don't realize it, but we're in the fourth week of a sermon series uh, coming from 1 Samuel. And today, just like I told you, we're going to be discussing the toughest kid in the Bible. This kid is so tough that one day he is walking through the woods. He's minding his own business. There's nothing going on. He's walking through the woods and he is met face to face with a bear. And you know what this kid does? He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He doesn't cry and find it. Where's my mommy? No, he kills the bear. That's a tough kid. That's a tough kid. He didn't run. He didn't hide. Now, he was actually working for his dad. He was a shepherd. He took care of the sheep, and he was out caring for his sheep. And he found, because he was out in hill country, which was an area way far away from the city, that there was a mountain lion in the herd. And what did he do? Did he run? Did he hide? No. He went into the fold, made sure that he got a hold of the lion. Scripture tells us that he grabbed the lion by the face so that it would drop the lamb and then beat it to death with a stick. That's a tough kid. By now, you probably know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about young David. David was visiting his brothers 
Uh, there was a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. He's visiting his brothers and he hears this man on the other side of the valley calling out and saying things about his army, the armies of the living God, the Israelites. Did he run? Did he hide? No. He ran into the battle. He spun his slingshot and he defeated Goliath on the battlefield that day. This is a tough kid. This kid is tougher than all the armies, all the soldiers there in the armies of Israel. This is a kid tougher than the king himself of Israel. This is a tough kid. But today, David is going to come up against something even scarier than the bear, even more uh, dangerous, even worse than a lion in the middle of his herd, even uglier, even meaner than that, uh, that Goliath, that giant. Today we're going to talk about something more dangerous than anything else that he had experienced and actually something that is dangerous to you and I here as well today. Someone very close to David is going to fall prey to what we're going to call the green-eyed monster, a monster called jealousy. And some people will call it being green with envy. And in our text today, David is going to have to come face to face with it. People who know a lot about words and they look at these things and they think about these things, they realize that the word or the term coming green with envy comes from the Greeks. This was a a term that they would use. They actually believed that emotions would come from the organs within your body. And they knew that your liver produces a, a color that is like yellow and green in substance. And so they actually thought that the liver would be producing too much of this green bile and it would start to come up and that actually someone's face and their color could actually turn and be become green with envy. An author some of you know about and certainly your parents would know about would be William Shakespeare. And he was the first to coin this phrase, the green-eyed monster, to personify jealousy. In Act 3 of Othello, he says this, Oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat that it feeds on. Shakespeare's making a comparison to a black cat or a puma. And some of you like cats. I hate cats. But some of you like cats. And there are black cats who actually have green eyes. And they're awful creatures. And the green-eyed cat or this green-eyed puma, they'll actually take when they have their prey, whether it's a bird or a small animal, and they've got it, they've got it in their clutches, and they'll toy with it. They'll mess with it before they destroy it, before they eat it, before they kill it. They're just messing with it. And that's the word picture of jealousy. Jealousy's a lot like that. Oh, beware, my Lord, of jealousy. It's the green-eyed monster. I told you young David was going to come face to face with the green-eyed monster. He's going to look into the eyes of his leader, the leader King Saul, and he is going to see it there. Hope you got your Bibles ready. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm beginning in verse 5. Would you read along with me? Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang... Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. 
Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from, on, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So this is after David has defeated, defeated Goliath. After the giant is literally lying face down before this little boy. And after the men of Israel rallied and they, they took their armies and they chased the Philistine enemy out of town. This is after David took Goliath's enormous sword as his own, as a prize of victory. This is after David had won the princess Merib. The princess was going to be his wife. And this is after Jonathan the prince, the son of King Saul, and now would become his best friend. Let's talk about that for a second. So Jonathan, he's the, the king's David's son, Jonathan. Uh, when king uh, called everyone together, he realized after the battle that, that David was of the family of Jesse. And so he decides to bring him into his own home. He decided not to let him go home anymore to hill country. He brings David into his home and he and Jonathan build this covenant relationship, this friendship, because David loved him like a brother, scripture tells us. Jonathan loved him so much that he gave him his own cloak, gave him his own sword, gave him his own belt, gave him his own bow and arrow, because this was a young man that he loved dearly. And these two men become best friends. And they are representative. They are biblical representative of what true friendship ought to look like and what true loyalty for a friend should look like. But if anyone... If anyone at all had reason to be jealous of David, it was Jonathan. Jonathan would look, the only person in the world that should be afraid of David would be Jonathan. Why? Because he is the crown prince. He is heir to the throne. The throne is his to have. David could have been seen immediately in the eyes of Jonathan as a threat to that. As David's popularity grew, he could assume that his seat was in jeopardy. And it would be a rival to all of his own aspirations. But instead of a response of fear and of envy or of jealousy, the response of Jonathan was one of love. His soul was knit together tightly, we read, with that of David. Later on, we'll see that Jonathan will come to the realization that he himself will never be on the throne of Israel. And even when that takes place, Jonathan shows not even one ounce of envy or a bitterness, or threatening for David. If anything, these two men, they'll go through life and they'll realize that their relationship with one another, their friendship with one another will grow even deeper. In a very real sense, Jonathan will actually risk his own life for David. And we'll see that later in a few sermons to come. But this was the response of the son of Saul. This certainly was not the response of King Saul himself, as we just read here. No, while Saul was very excited initially, he was very excited about this young man, David. When David had beat that giant, the Philistine, he he had gotten uh, Saul out of a jam in many ways. He was there, he was looking embarrassed in front of all of his people, but now he brings this young man to the front and they win the battle that day. David had rescued him from public embarrassment and brought victory back home to Israel. So after that, he inquires and he finds out who he is and he brings him into his own home, into the palace to live with the king and the royal family there in Israel. But that relationship would sour and sour quickly. And after only a very little while, 
we can imagine King Saul's eyes beginning to turn a shade of green, beginning to turn with envy. There's something inside of him beginning to morph, beginning to change, beginning to twist around, beginning to become uncomfortable and to trick him into becoming the green-eyed monster who would end up chasing David for the rest of his days, running him all over Israel, ruining his own reputation and eventually losing the kingdom in shame and total humiliation. Oh, beware, my Lord, of jealousy. It's the green-eyed monster. What happened then? Where did this relationship collapse? Where did this all start? If you remember, Saul, he promotes David. He gives him control of a large military unit. So it says that David went out with Saul and did whatever Saul commanded him to do, and he behaved himself wisely. He was also in charge of all of Saul's servants. But it happened as they were coming home, as they're coming back into town, David is marching along with all of his troops, that all of the women, they started coming out into the streets, and they started singing and dancing to meet King Saul with musical instruments, and they're throwing a party. What do we do in the United States when there's something significant happens and when we want to celebrate that there's an extraordinary hero in our midst? What do we do? We throw a parade. Did you think this was original to us? This is not a United States thing. This is something that humans have been doing for generations. We get a convertible. We get our hero. We place him in the back of the convertible. He sits and he waves to the crowd as he moves through the town. And people throw flowers and they cheer. They throw confetti and they, they sing songs. They bang noises together. They're so excited about their hero. That's not new here in the United States. People have celebrations like this in all cultures all over the world in all of history. Now standing outside at three in the morning in the freezing snow and the blowing and and waiting for the airplane to arrive, that might be ours. But a hero deserves a hero's welcome. So in this triumphal procession, in this parade, who is the person at the front of the parade? Who is the master of ceremonies? The person who the entire parade had been put together and crafted for? It was King Saul. He was the king. It was his army. He's the one marching through the streets. David is somewhere in the back with the rest of the troops. And it was he that had been victorious. Sure, it was David that had won some of the battle, but it was all for King Saul. And the people are coming out to greet him. And the women are coming and they're singing these songs in the public square and singing and celebrating with music. And they sang this song. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. There should have been enough glory to go around. Saul was being honored in this song. This was not a jab at Saul. There was a public recognition that Saul was at the helm. Saul was the hero. He had slain thousands. He had slain the enemy. Saul was the king. The reality was is he's the coach now. He's older. He's actually been the one that went out and he found this great draft pick of David and he put him on the field and he made him the great quarterback. Of course he isn't the one scoring touchdowns anymore. He's the coach. He's the king. And his great find, his diamond in the rough, the guy that no one had ever heard of, the guy that he went all the way out to hill country to find in many ways, he was successful And King Saul should have been successful as well. But when he hears the song, and the song says, oh, David is ten times more successful than Saul, something happens in him. 
So Saul goes and he, he takes David by the arm and he raises his arms up and he said, let's hear it for this young man. Let's hear it for David. Hip, hip, her. No, uh-uh. That's not how it goes. That's not what he did. That's not how the story continues. Why? Because Saul's eyes had already begun to turn green. The monster of jealousy had begun to take hold in him. And you know what else? The same can happen to you. Because jealousy begins with comparison. Jealousy begins with comparison. Now this year, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're a grandparent, or whether you're in kindergarten, you learned more in the last 12 months about the spread of a disease, the spread of a disease, a pandemic all over the country than you ever wanted to know. You learned that simple things like washing your hands or covering your mouth when you cough actually make a huge difference in transmitting the disease further. So when I say that jealousy begins with comparison, what you got to understand is that jealousy is like contracting an infectious disease. An infectious disease I'm going to call this morning the green eye. (laughs) You've got a case of the green eye. You have contracted green eye when you find yourself comparing yourself to someone else. Jealousy begins with comparison. Saul falls in the trap here of comparing himself to David. And this is not unique to Saul. This is unique not to him. It's a a trap that all of the human race will fall into. In fact, it's exactly as this is happening what the nation of Israel had fallen into. uh, That they had uh, looked in the first place uh, for a king. And they compared themselves to the pagan people around them. They said this, give us a king to be like the nations around us. The entire nation of Israel had the green eye. So the comparison trap makes a person come to believe that there's something deficient or something wrong within themselves. And then they start constantly comparing themselves to someone else. And the individual with the green eye starts to see the world differently. They start seeing this other person as undeserving of the beauty that they have or the intelligence that they have or the popularity that they have. The comparison trap begins and when a person has this green eye, they see another person's apparent wealth or their possessions and they can't seem to see anything else. And when the green-eyed monster of jealousy really has taken a hold in somebody, they don't become jealous of these things or those, that merchandise. They don't become jealous of that. They become jealous of the person. And it's the person that drives them absolutely crazy. They're jealous of that person. And so why was King Saul so jealous of David? Because in his mind, as he looked at things, people liked David better than they liked Saul. Scripture tells us from that day forward, in verse 9 it said here, that Saul keeps a watchful, jealous eye on David. Saul had contracted the green eye. Because jealousy begins with comparison, but secondly, jealousy, jealousy distorts reality. When a person is consumed with jealousy, when that black cat with the green eyes has got a hold of them, that monster has taken a hold of them, then jealous people start doing weird things. Jealous people start saying weird things. Jealous people start smelling weird things. Jealous people start seeing things that aren't really there. Look at verse 10. The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. 
Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I will pin David against the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, even though he had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him a command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. And everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Jealousy distorts reality. King Saul is a mess now. He goes from being at the head of the parade, marching through the city. People are cheering. They're chanting his name. They're singing songs about him. He is the master of ceremonies. He's making his way through the city. Everyone is excited about him. And the very next day, it says, he is beside himself. He is, as I told you, he is doing strange things. He is hearing strange things. He is seeing strange things because jealousy distorts reality. And King Saul has a severe case here. We were told specifically because the Lord is no longer with Saul. And so he is on his own and he is raving like a lunatic. He is babbling incoherent words. He is throwing himself around in an uncontrolled state. He is behaving like a toddler who isn't getting his own way. And guess who's there with him through it? Guess who's right beside him? First the lion, then the bear, then the giant, and now David is there with Saul. He really is fearless, isn't he? David obviously had skillful hands, both in war and in war instruments, but also in music instruments as well. More remarkable is his humble heart. Most men, after they would gotten the fame of David, as the people are chanting his name in the streets, as he becomes a ruler, as we see here, as a general over, over a thousand men, he had that type of control, and yet he returns back to do the job that he loves to do for the king. He faithfully performed his job, personally ministering to Saul in music, just like he always had, and yet King Saul can't see it. His distorted green eye can't even realize what's going on. You see, jealousy begins with comparison. When jealousy consumes someone, it distorts reality. David has good intentions here. David was here to try to soothe King Saul like he had done many times before. David was not here to harm him. David was not here to confuse him. David was not here to make himself look better. David was not here to try to take his throne or take his kingdom. David was here to sing a song. David was here to play music. But that's not how King Saul saw it. Because raging inside of him was jealousy running through his entire body now. What King Saul did next was not by accident. Saul may have tried to make it look like an accident. He wouldn't admit it, but his heart was set on killing David. He was not trying to scare him or try to surprise him. He was trying to deliver with his spear a fatal blow that would pin his body, pin him against the wall. I will pin him against the wall is what Saul says. He wants to kill David. Let me pause here and ask you a question. Going back to where I started this morning. Hallball. Don't you think you could make an argument 
that Jesse, that has seven sons, that Jesse spent some time playing hall ball with his kids to make sure that if by any chance, he said, in life, there may be a chance that someone is going to throw something at you, I want to make sure that you know how to dodge what's coming at you. No, probably not. Saul throws the spear. He misses David. Maybe Saul's aim was bad. Maybe he was affected by his mental or his emotional state. Perhaps David saw the spear and he ducked and he dodged out of the way. Perhaps God supernaturally redirected the spear because he was protecting this young man, David. However it happened, now David is there. The spear has fallen to the floor and now he's staring into the eyes of the green-eyed monster. No one could blame David if he had picked up the spear and thrown it back. We would have called it self-defense. But David had a different type of heart. It was a matter that he couldn't get away with. The the matter was that he had the heart that God wanted. David was determined to leave the situation in God's hands, that God was in control, and he could not take control of that himself because David just couldn't and wouldn't do it because God had taught David something, something that you need to know about the nature of jealousy as well. And that is this. Jealousy doesn't look good on you. Jealousy doesn't look good on you. Think about the things that we wear for a second. We wouldn't leave our house wearing two different shoes or wearing something strange that nobody would want you to be around in. You certainly wouldn't go out in public somewhere dressed like a fool, would you? You wouldn't walk in front of somebody and preach a sermon or stand on a stage looking like you were on your way to the St. Paddy's Day parade, would you? And if you did, wouldn't you hope that somebody would look at you and say, that doesn't look good on you? In order to save you the embarrassment, jealousy doesn't look good on you either, friends. Perhaps the most remarkable word in this chapter is the word twice. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying, I will pin David to the wall. And David eluded him twice. That means that David was there and Saul threw the spear at him twice. That means that Saul throws the spear, David dodges it, and then he goes back, picks up his instrument, and sits back down and plays music for him again. This is where you and I certainly would have drawn the line. Saying, listen, I will sit here, I will draw a big bullseye on my chest, and you can try to throw the spear at me and I will dodge it, but I'm not going to do that Again, when one spear goes whizzing by my head, that's enough. One miss, I've paid my dues. There's no more of this. I don't deserve this. I'm not the one who is making a fool of myself. I'm not the one who's letting my kingdom collapse all around me. I'm not the one who's to blame here. I'm not the one who's living in sin. Compared to you, old man, I am a rising star. You see it? Jealousy begins with comparison. Jealousy distorts reality, but jealousy doesn't look good on you. And it wouldn't have looked good on David either. Whether you're young or old, jealousy looks terrible on you as well. But some of you continue to wear it. Some of you continue to, you don't realize it, but you continue to carry pain and jealousy and bitterness and pride and hurt with us. And we wear them on the outside for the world to see. But David doesn't do that. David refuses to put it on. 
If David had thrown back that second spear after resisting the temptation the first time, we can assume that David would still be the king of Israel. He'd already been anointed by Samuel to do so. We can suppose that he would still be admired for having an honorable courage to dodge the first spear. But then we would allow him to have been in self-defense when it came to the second spear. But if he did this, he would have had the tinge of jealousy of the green eye in his own life. He would have discarded the cloak, the clothes that Jonathan had given him, and he would put on that green cloak and say, you know what, I want to wear this. I'm going to allow myself to get into this position, this green cloak of jealousy and selfish desire. And he would have surrendered the destiny to be the greatest king of Israel. He would have surrendered the ability to be the man after God's own heart, David the Great. He still would have been king, but the green-eyed monster would have been all over him. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 13, Paul writes about our duties as followers of Christ, reminds us to love our neighbor as ourself. He sets these things up to tell us that our, our life is fleeting away. You want to imagine forward what your kids are doing five years, 10 years, 15 years ahead? Paul is saying life is running away and we can't keep up with it. In verse 12, he says, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and do what? Put on the armor of light. In verse 14, he says, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves in Christ. There's no room to wear jealousy when we put on Christ first. Parents, let us not be too concerned. Let us not be too worried about whether our kids are tough enough. Let God take care of that. Let us be concerned and whether our kids are dodging the arrows, the spears of the evil one. Let us be concerned how our kids are clothing themselves. Are our kids clothing themselves? Are you clothing yourself in Christ? Are you going through the discipline of what it looks like every morning to clothe yourself, put on the armor of Christ so that we would clothe ourselves? You see, Christ defeated the green-eyed monster of jealousy and the weight of sin and death when he gave his life on the cross for you and for me. And each month, and here this morning, we celebrate that through something called the Lord's Supper. I asked you at the beginning, I said, do you remember playing dodgeball? Do you remember the sound that it makes? You know what he says in communion? Jesus says this, he said, do this what? So that you will remember it. Do this in remembrance of me. And so if you've got in your pews, if you grabbed one in the back, you should have a little cup, grape juice, a little piece of plastic on the top. Parents, if you're here with your kids, you want to demonstrate for them, discuss with them. I'm going to give you time to in just a moment of what this cup is all about, what it means to actually put on and cloak ourselves in Christ. There's still some in the back if you need to get some there. The reality is, is we are told in Scripture not to take of communion, not to participate in the Lord's Supper if we are not in the family of God, if we are not in the body of Christ. And so I ask you not to do that this morning. I ask you if your kids don't understand what I'm talking about this morning, just ask them to wait. Ask them to wait another month, another year, until they understand what does it mean? What did Jesus do to purchase for us? At what price? Was it that he said, you can clothe yourself now in Christ? Communion is also a time for us to evaluate 
our lives based on how Christ would have us live. But it's also a time of thanksgiving for Christ's sacrifice that completely covers us. It's more than a religious ritual. It's a common union, communion, that we hold together as a body of believers. So this morning, if you've got that cup, you can take it out. On the top, there's a thin piece of plastic. You can pull that back. If you're watching from home this morning and you've got a cup of juice, it can be a, we've had coffee and donuts. Some people, it's all designed, uh, Jesus did this at a normal family meal, a friendly meal that he had with others as a demonstration for others. He said, do this in remembrance of me so that every time that you came to meal together, you could be able to experience this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I see from the Lord I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. So if you'll take that little piece off the top. He said he gave thanks and he broke. He said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's break it together. The next verse says, in the same way he also took the cup. You can do that here. Be very careful with it. Peel that top back so you can hold it back carefully. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Lord, would you teach us? Teach us to clothe ourselves in you. There's so many ways, Lord, that we can get caught up. We can get caught up in the comparison game. We can get caught... And, and realizing, Lord, this morning that when we clothe ourselves in you, that is our only protection against sin and the darts of the evil one. So, Lord, let us not be a people with green eyes, where the green-eyed monster has a hold of us, but, Lord, let us be free from that and live in freedom because of what you have done and the cloak that you give us, the, the jacket that you give us to wear to be covered by you. As parents, Lord, teach us to lead our children well. In Jesus' name we pray.